everyone. Blessings to all of you. It's good to be alive and well. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've been talking about uh, the Apostle Paul. Actually, he hasn't even had his name changed yet. Um, he's known as Saul of Tarsus. We've been tracing over the, you know, months and these past few weeks as well. Not only do we look at his radical transformation where he went from being this fierce, um, very antagonistic opponent of Jesus to someone who actually believed in him and embraced him. We've sort of been tracing his path, and we talked about his conversion as a model of transformation and how God wants to transform our lives. We also then watched how he became, you know, um, a suspected, um, you know, uh, they, the early church did not believe in him, that he had a true conversion, a true turning to Jesus. And so it took someone to sponsor him, Barnabas. We talked about this, this early leader of the church called Barnabas and the way in which he sponsored and and was willing to believe in Saul. And ultimately, Saul begins to emerge as an early leader in the church. Um, so we've been walking that path. We called it uh, you know, radical commitment, though, for a reason. One, because, as we're going to see, it involves some moments of deep, intense commitment on the part of Paul. But the other thing had to do with, in my mind, radical commitment. I, I know it seems like an intense phrase, you know, radical commitment. But I'm, well, the way I was hoping it would come out would be that it's a call to being courageous in our faith, a call to being more responsive to the Lord when he's asking us to step forward on his behalf. That part of being radically committed means to be willing to sometimes risk things to represent his heart. And so that's going to be a kind of theme that emerges throughout the study. We're going to be looking at some of the you know, movement of the church as it breaks out of its borders for the first part of the church's life, it was almost exclusively Jewish and centered in Jerusalem. Slowly but surely, it began to burst out of the seams and break out of its confinement and take this message of Jesus into what was then called the Gentile world. We're going to talk about that. I'm going to get into it in a moment. I just want to pray, though, and ask God to just bless our time. And uh, I will really like to pray this pr at this, this service as well, specifically, because, Lord, you know, we have... I mean, many of us have, have things that are going to be happening the rest of this day. We've got plans. Uh, it's so beautiful outside. Um, but you know what? I want to ask you to help us to really just get the maximum benefit of what we've chosen to do, which is a really good thing, in carving out space to listen for your voice and to make our priority something that's built upon your words and the way in which we construct our lives and the way in which we, we build as an architect, as it were, our lives is informed by your reality and what you teach us. And so I really want to invite you to speak. And as best as we can say this, we want to open up our hearts to you and our minds. We would, we would be open. Openness is a gift. And uh, we invite you to help us draw closer to you so that we'd live better lives that honor you and touch people with more of your reality and of your love. So continue your work, both inside and outside. But right now, Lord, our focus is upon you. We ask this blessing, your grace upon grace, in Jesus' name. Amen, God. All right. I mentioned that Saul, as he's known at the time, um, was someone who, at his outset, had a burden for the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, even though he was a very intensely committed uh, Jew, a former Pharisee. Um, he was very committed to his heritage and his culture. But uh, something had happened, something that had been uniquely unexpected, 
Again, I mentioned that the church in Jerusalem had been somewhat confined to just sharing Jesus among fellow, amongst fellow Jews. Part of the persecution, ironically, that Saul had been a part of had pushed the, the believers outside of Jerusalem and Judea into other places in the region. And you're going to find that geography is a big part of what we do here because so much of what happens uh, in the Bible, especially as the church begins to extend itself, is just based in real-life places that we can see today. And it's really helpful sometimes to think about the Mediterranean world, the reach of the, the Roman Empire, um, and also Europe and how it, and Africa, and how it all relates to the spread of this message of Jesus. So, but, but having said that, what they were not expecting nor anticipating was that there was going to come a breakout amongst the Gentiles, the, you know, the, the non-Jewish people. They, they did not anticipate a huge breakthrough where an entire community of believers emerges in one of the most critical and important cities of the Roman Empire. The third most important city of the empire at the time was Antioch of Syria. I'll put the map back up just again to remind us of where it was located. It was there that the church breaks out in a way that nobody had planned. And all of a sudden you have, yes, a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, but a significant Gentile group of people are believing in Jesus. And the Jerusalem church sends Barnabas to go see what is actually going on and verify that it's, it's taking place in a healthy way. He gets there, this, this great, highly honored leader of the early church who had been, as I mentioned, Saul's early sponsor and um, was known as an encourager, highly respected, um, an older brother in the faith to Saul. And Barnabas gets there and he recognizes immediately God is doing something extraordinary and, in, and it comes to his mind that he should go and get Saul who's up in Tarsus and bring him down to help work with this emerging movement. And so we're told in Acts 11, verses 25 and 26, we'll put this up, that he goes to Tarsus and gets Saul, brings him down to Antioch of Syria. And there, there is this, you know, church where they, together, they pastor that church for a year. Large groups of people are there. And we're given this one other um, point of note. It was in Antioch that people were first referred to as Christians, People who followed Jesus were first referred to as Christians. It's the first time that term ever takes hold. They begin recognized as people who follow the Christ, this Jesus, the Savior. Now, we also know that something else was going on. We know from the historian Josephus that there was a famine, a series of famines, actually, but one in particular that had blistered the area of Judea, which was at that time Palestine under Roman rule. That that famine, which, here's the thing, when we read about famines in the Bible, oftentimes they're sort of remote because we don't, in our you know, particular environment, experience them that much. Um, but in their day, a, a bad famine was akin to like a really bad thing happening in the economy, and to have a series of famines would be you know, almost just like a depression. And we know that Jerusalem, and Judea in particular, had been really hit hard. And there was a, not only had the church been persecuted, but then they had on top of that this huge economic disaster that was happening. And so the church in Antioch did something that never happened before. This predominantly Gentile church in Antioch made a decision because they felt connected. And in some way, um, they, they felt like they were supposed to bless the church in Jerusalem who was suffering. And they, they set up a relief fund. And they entrusted that money, that resource, to Barnabas and Saul to bring down to Jerusalem to give it to help the church. So it's really the first time that you see this new believers helping helping what had been, you know, the kind of ascending church. It was a beautiful thing to behold, the unity, 
between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers working together, sharing a common love for Christ, and verifying that by helping, one, helping each other. Barn that, that brings us to where we are here. Because it says in Acts 12, and I put this in verse 25, that when Barnabas and Saul, notice the order, Barnabas and Saul. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission to Jerusalem, the one I just referred to, look at that verse, they returned, and they took uh, with them a young man named John Mark. Now, John Mark is going to show up again, and he is going to actually become a very significant figure in the relationship between Barnabas and Saul. He's the nephew of Barnabas. He's also, by the way, the one that the second gospel is named after, Matthew Mark. That's this John Mark, who also seemed to have a very close relationship as a young man with Simon Peter. Now, we're told that they made their way back to Antioch, and then we come to the 13th chapter of Acts. One of the great chapters of the Bible in the sense that it marks significant changes. One of the things, and it starts out looking so ordinary. Because what we're basically told about is there is this gathering of leaders that happens. The leaders in the church in Antioch gathered together. They actually were given five specific names. Look at the names. It says here, among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria, here are five, five men that are specifically mentioned. Barnabas, who we know about, the senior leader. Simeon, who was also known as the black man because of his swarthy appearance or because of his African descent. He was a recognized leader in this early church in Antioch. We're also told about um, a man named Simeon and Lucius, who was from Cyrene. Interesting. Uh, Cyrene, also in North Africa. Think about the person when Jesus was being pushed through the streets of Jerusalem and he faltered in his humanity carrying the cross the Roman guards pulled out a man from the crowd whose name we know. He was called Simon the Cyrene. The reason we know his name is because he became part of the believing community. Many people believe that Lucius was his son. It's not absolutely certain, but there's a strong sense of continuity. We're also told that there was another man named Manian, and we're given a little bit of information about him. He was a childhood companion of King Herod Antipas. King Herod. Um, was the Herod that had John the Baptist beheaded. The one that Jesus said was... Un think, when he interviewed Jesus, when he was being taken to the... Um, you know, interviewed right before he was crucified, he was taken to Herod. Herod asked him a series of questions. Herod is, as far as I can tell, the only person in all of Scripture who ever is recorded as asking Jesus a question that he refused to answer. He said nothing. Uh... Evidently, Mannion was a person of means and wealth who had grown up in a, a, with, with his friend, a friend of someone who was a king, in this case, Herod. And then we are told last, and I'll say this, last and least, Saul of the group, of the team, because he is the junior leader. Although Saul comes from a background that in many ways is more outstanding than all of them. Remember, a trained Pharisee trained under as the prize student of the, one of the premier teachers of the day, a man named Gamaliel. Saul, who had been entrusted with the leading, some of the leading responsibilities, a man known for his extraordinary intellect and genius and his ferocity of temper. This man who had, to the shock and dismay of so many of his peers and contemporaries, became a <laughs> radical advocate of Jesus, the one he used to despise. But he was formidable in many, many ways. But at this point, he is not the leader. In fact, he's not even referred to yet as Paul. 
They're having a gathering. What it says they're doing is they're actually beginning to ask a question. And this hadn't really happened a lot before, but they started asking questions. In light of what God is doing here in Antioch, what do you think he wants us to do next? And it says they got together, and these men were worshiping the Lord, and they were fasting. That is, they were withholding themselves from their meals, zeroing in, as it had been a tradition also throughout the Old Testament, of delineating a focus by withholding oneself from meals and coming together in a point to seek the mind of God together. So they were worshiping, they were singing, they were praying, they were meditating. They were together listening collectively for what they saw as a directive of the Lord. They were hoping God would give them a sense of what to do next. And it probably happened in this way, that one of them said, you know, I'm, I'm getting an impression here that the Lord is wanting to actually send Barnabas, you, and Saul Maybe it was Barnabas who said it. Maybe it was Saul. Maybe it was Lucius. We don't know. What we do know is they came to a collective understanding that the Holy Spirit was directing them to send out Barnabas and Saul in what would be the first true missionary venture in the history of the church, the first time ever the gospel would go to sea. And it says in verse uh, 4, it says, actually it says so verse 3, it says, so after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them, which is a way of saying they, they prayed over them and touched them and prayed over them. And it says that they, they, they sent them on their way. And so Barnabas and Saul were sent, it says, not just by the men, they were sent by the Holy Spirit. And they went down to the seaport. Now I'll put the map, you can see the map again. See where Seleucia is in relation to Antioch? 16 miles down the Orentes River, today, Turkey. You go down from Antioch, you would go to the port city of Seleucia. Seleucia being where a lot of the goods were moved along into the Mediterranean. It, and by the way, this happens at, you know, when the gospel spreads, it happens at one of the most critical times in history. Believe me, it was not coincidence. I mentioned that the Roman Empire had, had extended itself, even in other parts of what was known as the land of the barbarians in Europe, and it extended itself down, right, into Egypt and, and North Africa and throughout Palestine. It, it was an encompassing movement. But what it had done was it had created some degree of travel safety, which is going to become an imperative for taking this message. Now, it didn't mean that there were areas that were not safe, you know, or I would say there weren't unsafe areas. There were. But for the most part, Rome, by its sheer ferocity, had created the Pax Romana, which meant that the rule, the rule of Rome was feared. And it created, and they meted out justice ruthlessly. Uh, the crucifixion, Jesus crucified, but that was what happened to criminals who defied Rome. And it could be for very petty things. Remember who were the two men on the side of Jesus? They were two robbers. That's what happened to them. A public execution. It was fierce. You did not mess with Rome. As a result, there was an element of peace. Now, some of the high country, some of the regions where there was less of a Roman presence, it could be unsafe. And as we can see, it will be, we'll see in the weeks to come, it will be a little bit perilous. But for the most part, there was safety. There was also an unusual transportation system that up until this time had never been in existence. Rome had guarded, because Rome had made a lot of highways and roadways, um, they had also created a safe transportation sh system for shipping. People could travel in safe ways. It had never happened before. So it was unlike any other time. Anyway, Barnabas and Saul get to the Seleucia, being, feeling that they are being led of the Lord. They make a decision that they're going to get on a ship and they're going to go to Cyprus. You see the island of Cyprus. Cyprus is a beautiful island in the Mediterranean. 
Uh, in fact, I asked them to get, take a, there's a little shot of it that we have that's kind of a high shot. You can see the island in relation to the Mediterranean. It's a pretty cool shot there. 150 miles long at, the, at its greatest width, about 50 miles wide. They get to the, what we're told here is they, they journey to Salamis, or Salamis, which is on the uh, east coast. And I asked them to show another picture kind of approaching the coastline of, of Cyprus. You get a kind of a little sense that all this is part of a real geography that we can see today. They get there and they do what is customary. It becomes a practice of Paul, of Saul in this point, Barnabas and Saul, to do this everywhere they go. Their first destination is to find the synagogue and to start talking about Jesus to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Synagogues were like churches. Essentially, a synagogue was, was started at the time of Ezra, hundreds of years before Christ, when the temple was either in dis dismay, um, leveled, or when it was difficult to get to it. Synagogues were places where people could come together, they could hear the word of God read, they could worship together, they could have commentary on the word. Just a lot of what we do now. The only thing they didn't do in synagogues was they didn't do the sacrifices. That was a left alone for the temple. In fact, when Jesus starts his ministry, remember, when he begins to emerge into a public presence, it says he goes to the synagogue that was in Nazareth. And that's where he, at the time of the reading, he opens up the scroll of Isaiah and reads out of it. And then he, by the time he's done, he says, and this is fulfilled now in your very eyes. But it was a practice. And so Saul and Barnabas make their way firstly to the synagogue, and then they begin to, what we're told here, is kind of hop through the towns. Again, going back to the map there, hopping through the towns until they go from the east coast, Salamis, all the way over to Paphos. You see where Paphos is? On the west side. And they make their way across, talking about Jesus, sharing this new message. The Messiah has come. He died, but he rose again. Paul, Saul, at this time, throwing in his statement that he is alive. He appeared to me. I mean, they're talking about him, getting it out. They get to Paphos. Now, I asked them to take, show a couple more shots so you can get an idea of the beauty of what we're talking about. Look at the turquoise there. I mean, that makes you want to go on a vacation right there. I mean, that is like, look at this other shot. That they threw, that was, this is beautiful. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> so here's the deal. I want the, we read the Bible, and a lot of times we go, oh, yeah, I'm reading But we, we forget. To, we, we need to smell it. We need to think about what's happening. We need to see it in our mind's eye. And so here's what happens. There was a Roman proconsul, a governor, who was in charge of the entire island. And he resided in Paphos. He probably, as would have been the custom, was on the heights overlooking the beauty of the Mediterranean, its turquoise beauty. He would have had a palatial villa. In that villa would have been a large uh, you know, retinue of people, attendants and soldiers, uh, where he ruled out of and lived. Uh, we are told something else, that he gets wind about this message that's being spoken by, his name is Sergius Paulus, and he hears about this, these two messengers, these two men who have come talking about this Messiah who has come. But we're also told something else. This is very interesting. Watch what's about to happen. It says that afterwards they traveled from town to town, this is verse 6, across the entire island until finally they reached Paphos where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet, actually, a man named, who had named himself Bar-Jesus. That was his moniker, um, his sobriquet, his nickname. 
That's what he called himself. Not because of Jesus of Nazareth, because Jesus was a name. Remember what Jesus meant. It meant God our Savior. He called himself Son of Savior. That was his name. His real name was Elimas. The Bible describes him as a false prophet, someone who, was, who had, through charlatan and skills and a practitioner of the dark arts, had got himself into the very court of the Roman governor who is revealed as a man who is seeking God and who is very interested in spiritual things. And this Elimus, this Bar Jesus, as he calls himself, had become this primary spiritual advisor to the Roman governor, the proconsul, the council, I should say, named Sergius Paulus. And that's the background for what happens here because it says that, he, verse 7, he had attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who was an... In this is interesting. The Bible, and the Bible doesn't throw these terms out just haphazardly. He says, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. So we're talking about a very learned man, a very intelligent man, a man of high reason, and yet he had a, 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 a vulnerability to spiritual deception, which reminds us that spiritual clarity and raw intelligence or power do not necessarily always go hand in hand. And in this man's case, he was extremely rational and very powerful, and yet he was being deceived by a charlatan, a false prophet, by the name of Elimas, or Bar-Jesus, as he called himself. And it was this, this is what's going on. But it says that he, he had heard about Barnabas and Saul, and he invited them to come and to share this message. So somebody had sent out a messenger. That messenger was told, the governor has asked you to come and share your teaching on these words of God. That was, an, that was an astonishing opening. And again, in my mind's eye, they're on that west coast. They're making their way up into the palatial, palatial villa, right, with its, its white columns, each stair with the Mediterranean in the, behind them as they're walking together saying, what does God have in mind here? What does God have in mind here? He has opened up a door for us with a very powerful man. And as they're walking up those stairwell, stairs until they finally get to the place, we may assume an open court, again, with a large group of people who had attached themselves to and who were also interested in hearing. And then, of course, we may assume there is Sergius Paulus sitting on what would have been called a, a kind of a judgment seat. And as he's seated there, waiting to hear these two, both intrigued at the same time, wanting to weigh out, if possible, that there was something that, about God that, that these men would share. And then, of course, lurking on the side, we're told, was his chief spiritual advisor, Elimas, we're told. And it says that he, somewhere or another, they walk in, I'm assuming, they come and they say, they, they make their proper announcement, and they say, we want to talk to you. And somewhere along the way, they start to be talking about how the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has now come to us, and how the Messiah that was promised, the anointed one, God's own son, he starts talking about Jesus and his death and his resurrection. Perhaps Saul begins to say, I was once not a believer. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, opposed to him at every point. Maybe he starts talking about his, and I had a moment on this road. He starts talking. Somewhere in this discourse, Elimas is watching what's going on. And he's, he's watching these two make their presentation, Barnabas and Saul, appealing, talking about Jesus. 
And then he's watching Sergius Paulus, who something must have been in his body language. But he, he's, he's perceiving that Paulus is actually beginning to get drawn in and is, is in some ways opening himself up to this, this message that these, these men are bringing about Jesus, which will be a significant threat to him. And so while they're talking, we're told that, and look at what it says here, then Elamas, they called here the sorcerer, preferred, he, he interfered, and he urged the governor to pay, to pay no attention to, to Barnabas, to what Barnabas and Saul said. He was, he was, we're told, trying to keep the governor from believing. So as he's watching what's going on, he's sensing that there is some type of, of openness going on here, and he interrupts in the middle of it. He says, no, 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 this is, this is, this is crazy. Don't believe these, but these men are deluded, deluded. They're telling you. And that creates one of the most intensely powerful moments of confrontation recorded thus far. Look what it says here. It says that in that moment, Saul, also known as Paul, look at this. For the first time, he feels the power of the Lord in a unique way. It says, oh, what else do we see here? For the first time ever, Saul is now called Paul. Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he, he says, he looked, the sorcerer in the, he looked Elamas in the eye. He looked him in the eye in the middle of this interruption. And look what he says. He says, you son of the devil. Now, remember what Elamas had called himself son of the Savior. He says, you are the son of the devil. And look what he goes on to say. This is intense. He says, you are full of every sort of deceit and fraud. And the enemy of all that is good. Will you never stop perverting the true ways of the Lord? And then he says, watch now. And then there was this moment. And this hadn't happened anything like this before. Watch now, for the Lord has laid his hand of punishment upon you. And you will be struck blind and you will not see sunlight for some time. And instantly, we're told, a mist, a darkness came over the man's eyes to the point where first it began just like probably just a little bit of a cloudiness. And the Bible says that slowly it got darker and darker. And remember, he had looked right into his eyes and to the point where he couldn't see anymore. He was temporarily blinded and had to actually be guided and led out by the hand. And it says, Sergius Paulus is watching all of this. And again, the first time Paul asserts himself feeling compelled by the Holy Spirit, steps forward in a stunning way. And it says that, look, verse 12, it says, when the governor saw what had happened, he became a believer, and he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. He opens up the first recorded time, uh, uh, first recorded convert of, of the apostle Paul now is this man, Sergius Paulus. In an extraordinary heated moment of unplanned exchange. Now, it got me thinking about this. I mean, that's the account. But I started thinking about it. So I'm thinking, and I'm just going to put this up because it got, it, I think there's some applications for us. I want us to ponder them as we, as we sort of close this thing out. I want us to think about this. So I want us to notice number one, you guys, the church, those who claim to follow Jesus, those who have had our lives touched by his reality, we have been created to share the good news of Jesus. It, how can I say this? And, 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 I, and, and, and parenthetically, if we, if we haven't, and I get this, maybe some of us aren't even there yet. Maybe some of us are actually more like Sergius Paulus. We are weighing out this. 
But there comes a point often where we, we say, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to step forward in faith. I'm ready to believe. I'm ready to make a commitment. Sometimes it's just a matter of praying that with our friend. Sometimes it's something that, you know, after service, if you ever need to, you have someone who will pray with you in the connection area. Bottom line is, some of us, the Lord calls us to these moments where we need to make a step and say, that's who I want to be. I accept you. But once we do, and some of us have been following him for a while, we must never forget that we were born to share. We were born to share the good news. We were born to share it in a way that brings life because we love Jesus. When we love someone, listen to me, we will talk about them. I know people say to me, well, you don't want your faith to be private and kind of just lived out and, and don't say anything. And I say, well, that's like someone I love. I just never, I never talk about him. He's changed my life. He's changing it. I do love the Lord. I don't want to be ashamed of him. Uh, I say, well, just, 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 don't talk. Just kind of, I'm, not, I'm not saying don't live. I, I want all of us to live it out. I want to live it out. I, I, but if, if, li if only living it out perfectly is a criteria for being able to talk about them, then the truth is I'm, none of us will ever talk. I might as well get off. I mean, we, we, nobody is so good that we can't that we're gonna say, well, if that's the criteria, then no one will ever talk about Jesus. But I'm not, well, look, we all agree. We don't want to be hypocrites. Oh, get that. We, we should be seeking to live an authentic life. We should be seeking to live a life that's in harmony with what the Lord teaches us is his ways. We should try to be eliminated, even at times if it means living counterculturally, um, to live in a way that honors the Lord. We should be challenging ourselves at an internal, personal level. We should be increasingly seeing real transformation occurring. We should be yielding up to what God wants to do in our relationships. That's clear. But we also need to be open to talking about him. When you love someone, you talk about them. Or her. I mean, it's, just a, it's real. And here's the thing I also noticed. Think about Elamas. This is the second piece here. Is that I realize that when it, there are always going to be some people who want to prevent. I know this is going to sound hard, but it's true. Just like he was who want to prevent other people from accepting Christ. You know, I was thinking back, in my, again, back into my own life, which at the end of the day, our own stories are probably the truest form of sharing. Um, I remember when I was just a young believer, um, just really in that whole 18 to 22 period there in my life where I was really excited about just growing in my faith. Um, some of the things that I had grown up learning in, in the Sunday school, now that Christ was moving in a very dynamic way in my life, uh, I just, I, I, they were coming alive. I was reading his words very differently. They were, I was starting to see things in his word that I never saw before. It was alive. Um, and, and I was beginning to see how, th how intricate it was, how beautiful it was, how deep it was, how much more there was to it than I realized, how it was, like Jesus said, uh, a, treasure of, a, a treasure chest filled with treasure new and old, and how it all was integrated together. And the more you thought you knew, the more you realized you didn't know. And I was just amazed, intrigued, and drawn into a, to the deeper life of following Christ. I remember going to state, because I, I felt I was supposed to stay in San Francisco. And so I ended up going to San Francisco State and did my undergraduate work there. And I, one of the things I remember was I had never had this happen to me before. I was very excited about my faith in Jesus. And I would get and I would sit under very intelligent, learned, learned people. Uh, I remember sitting in one philosophy class in particular, 
talking about Kant and different things, you know, Sartre and all the, there was just concepts. I, and then I started hearing people who were, were clearly highly intellectual and, and learned starting to diminish as being simplistic and naive, a, faith, a real faith in Jesus, not the historical Jesus, but a, a, somebody who would actually be really committed to him was, was just basically a fool. And over time, oh, of course you can't trust the biblical documents, they're unworthy or contradictory. I'm hearing all this stuff, I'm getting it. And it, it, there were some situations where I remember having conversations, and I said, I know, what, I may not be able to answer you now, but I cannot deny what God has done in my life. And I know at some level you're messing with my head because I can't compete with you at this level right now, but I will not deny the reality of what God has been doing in my life. And, and as a result, I'm wrestling through things, even at an intellectual level, beginning to realize it was a very rational faith. And there was a ways, to, look, it takes just as much faith to not believe in God. And all of a sudden, I begin to realize that, you know, I started having conversations. Then my problems started becoming, I would get in arguments all the time. <laughs> and, and, I, and, then, and, and none of them, very few of them actually produced anything resembling fruit or, or good. Remember the old saying, a man convinced against his will is unconvinced still. You can win an argument and totally lose a person. It took me a while. To, you, know, you, you can lose an argument, too. But you can win an argument and lose a person. And, and, and honestly, what it realizes is that over time, sometimes you just need to listen. And you need to be open. You need to be authentic. And not everybody is agenda-driven. A lot of times, sometimes I thought people were hostile. They actually weren't that hostile at all. They just had real questions. And sometimes I can say is I can't answer those questions. But I can tell you what he's done in my life. Right? Here's the deal. And this leads me to the third piece here, you guys. Just stay with me on it. I believe that the Lord will at times create divine appointments for us. I know it is true. There are some times during the day where we weren't expecting it, we weren't planning it, but all of a sudden we're having a conversation with someone. Could be at work. Could be uh, having coffee at the coffee house, which just happened to me last week. Could be in a hospital. <laughs> happened to me a couple weeks back. Could be on a bar train, but not today, right? Not today. <laughs> <laughs> the bottom line is, we get these moments where all of a sudden someone starts talking. And one of the reasons I love to create a church, a safe place to bring people to, is because we can say, you know what? I, I was just at church last week. I say this all the time. I was at church last week. I don't even tell them what I was doing at church a lot of times. I just, I'm just part of it as well. And I say, you know, the guy, I, I learned something. And, it, and all of a sudden, I realized that there are people who will talk about spiritual things. It, it actually surprises me a lot of times. I walk out of that conversation. You know what I say? God set, this, God set that appointment. God set this up. This was, this was a, not just serendipity. It was divine serendipity. It was a product because it, all I had to say was, Lord, my heart is, uh, today, my heart is open if you have someone you want me to cross paths with and share a little bit about my love for you or talk about you in some way, I, I'm open. Help me. And we don't even say it, but we just are. And you know what I also found? Sometimes when I was least feeling, sometimes I've, some of those conversations have come when I felt the least <laughs> worthy of having them. And I go, wow, God, you have a sense of humor because I didn't really feel like talking about you, but I am right now. And I clearly see you in this. I never forget one time where I was at a, I was coming out of a peace coffee on West Portal, and I sat down on a bench. They had a bench there, and I was sitting there, and I didn't want to talk to anybody. I just wanted to be by myself. I was opening up some mail, a 
person walking by sees the name of the mail that I hadn't even, even ordered. It was kind of like one of those mass mailers. It had the name of somebody of a ministry on it. The person starts into a conversation with me about this ministry. It stops me. And I'm just, oh, it says, hey, you know what? You know that person? And I said, well, yeah, I kind of know a little bit about him. You know, so we start talking. All of a sudden, she just, she says, you know, I, I think God, I, I, I'm a very spiritual person. I don't think I, I didn't share this with anybody, any of the other services, but I just feel like sharing it now. No, she didn't say that. That's what I'm saying right now. Okay, she said. Um, and I said, she says, I'm a very spiritual person. And I said, she, I said, well, so am I. And we started talking, and I said, you know, I, she goes, well, I go, I go to church a lot, and you know, and she goes, well, where do you go to church? I said, well, I go to this church called Cornerstone, you know, and then I go, I go, you know, and so I said, you know, I'd love for you to come sometime. And she goes, well, maybe I will. And so I happened to, I carry a card. You know, you, anytime you can get, so I just said, I said, just take this, or I can't remember if I gave her a card or if I wrote, I can't even remember, to be honest. All I remember is one of the, I was sitting here, church was, I remember this woman, not the first week, a couple weeks later, but I remember her walking in and sitting at the back of the church. And all of a sudden, I remember, because I was preaching, I remember seeing her just tears, just streaming down her eyes. And, you know, eventually, uh, just, I, I mean, I could say her name. I'm, I mean, she's, I'll just be honest. I watched God transform her life in an amazing way. It's one of my most favorite stories because it was such a, an everyday thing that had nothing to do with me being smart or knowledgeable or anything else. In fact, I wasn't even looking to talk to anybody about Jesus. I was just sitting on a bench opening up some mail, not wanting to be bothered by anybody. And the Lord had it. No, I'm being honest. And the Lord set up a divine appointment. Some of them turn out that way. Sometimes it's just the Lord just wants us to talk about them. But here's my last point, last thought of today. <laughs> Don't be surprised that when we step out in courage that God shows up in an amazing way. We're not all Paul. In fact, none of us are, and we never will be. But I'll tell you this. God wants, there are going to be moments where God's going to ask us to be courageous. You know what someone told me today? They said, you know what? Sometimes being bold is not, it's not necessarily being loud. It's just being willing to talk a little bit about Jesus. And if the people who say they love him never talk about him, how will our world know how much he loves us and how good he can do amazing things happen when people who love him talk about him? Let's pray. Lord, um, how good it is to be in your house. How beautiful it is to allow you to work in our lives, Lord. We'll have a story to tell, a person to reach, someone you want us to become. We're all in some level being formed by you. Let your good work continue unabated in the good and in the bad and sometimes most profoundly in the bad. Let your will be done. Let our hearts be soft and let our words go out. Seeking to live lives, yes, yes, but also being unashamed to speak of you um, with humility but authenticity, sincerity, um, an honest word. Uh, we pray that you would allow our boldness to increase as we sit with these words and these, these accounts in the coming weeks that it would, it would grow our faith in real ways. 
So I pray for your blessing. Bless our closing time, our final song, our time of giving, yes. But help us, Lord, also to ponder these truths and to be open to those divine appointments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.